This thing on? It's recording. So, our dear listeners, welcome back to our second episode of season three of The Bar. Lovely to have you on board. We hope you've enjoyed the first one and the second one keeps up to your expectations. We're very much looking forward to the things we have in store for you guys today. Um, Very exciting, very exciting guest, um, which we will get to shortly. But first, you get to listen to Karina and I catch up. I'm sure you guys are dying to hear about how our week's going with, you know, uni in its early stages. Um, Brayden, have you picked online or in-person classes? Excellent way to start. So I very much enjoyed the return to campus. uh, And I would say that I'm very much also a visual learner in saying that. I think for me, it's too easy to check out of online class where you can just switch off the camera, switch off the microphone, and all of a sudden you're playing your computer. Like, you know, how did this happen? How did we get here? You know, very good questions. But I think the way to avoid that for me personally is at least to uh, to go into class, sit down there with a couple of mates, hopefully, if we've got our schedules lined up, you know, and just interact. I, I find I ask a lot more questions, also answer a lot more questions, which does wonders for my class participation mark. Um, but also I, I absorb more um, being there in person and just, you know, a bit less robotic it almost feels. So, yeah, I have picked in person for most of my classes. I had to do an online one for one of my business subjects. That was just because it fit into my timetable a bit better. What about you? What did you choose? Absolutely same as yours and for the same reasons as well. I find that when I'm online doing like Zoom classes, I'll go on Instagram a lot, scroll through and just not pay attention to what the tutor or the students are contributing. But yeah, in person really forces me to participate as well because I'm not like someone who will speak up immediately, but in person does give me the opportunity to do that and like Brayden said, boost our class participation mark. Yeah, and it's sacred, you know, every single mark counts for average students like myself. (laughs) And myself, it's ruthless. (laughs) But I think the thing though, Prina, is it's actually much more of an investment for you to come in person to go to class because your commute is so much longer than mine. It is. So it's a lot easier for me to say in person when on a good day, I can be in the city in 20 minutes. Of course, recently with the rain and the trains and (laughs) actually it took me about 50 minutes to get into work this morning. That was driving. That's still less than my normal commute as well, though. Yeah. Look at <laughs> me complaining about a 50-minute commute. Meanwhile, I take two hours to come into uni one <laughs> way. <laughs> it's actually an hour and a half, but, you know, we'll have one Is that that train? Yeah. So buses How long is it by driving? Oh, I have. I mean, I've never been driven or drove to uni, but I assume it'd be like 50 minutes-ish. Wow. It's okay. not that long, but. So why? Have you ever looked at places to move up? I have, but, you know, uh, money is a factor <laughs> that I actually don't have at the moment. <laughs> well, yes, money money is a very pressing. You know, law students and saving money, I don't think that equation adds up. Yeah, look, I just think students and, well, actually, I do have a couple of friends who are very on top of their finances and oh, I have really? a lot of respect for them. Whereas I'm the type of guy that, you know, wakes up on a Sunday morning and goes, wow, where did $300 go at the oh. club last night? So, um, Karina, what subjects are you doing this semester? Um, I'm doing constitutional law, uh, one of the core subjects for law. Then I am doing international marketing, which is a marketing unit, like the name suggests, which was really unnecessary for me to say. And then I'm doing, <laughs> should I say, you know what, How many starting points? Um, six and then eight and six, I think. So eight 20 in total, okay, which is, you nice. know, under the full-time load but I can't actually add more well because you then you'd be over overload yeah and don't want to be overloaded no I mean I I, (laughs) no I wouldn't mind getting like you know four units but I know I would die with the pressure like I would just start crying (laughs) I just I would I know I would like the summer unit that I did (laughs) killed me (laughs) when was your last menti be my what (laughs) what did he say didn't get that Menti V is like a stupid way of saying mental breakdown. Oh, <laughs> oh, um, two weeks ago, <laughs> two weeks ago, yeah, right before my accounting B final exam. Yeah. Oh, you haven't got results for that yet? No. No. I'm dreading it. 
I'm, I'm supposed to do a county B this semester, but I think I'm going to swap it for IPCL. All right, Brayden, what are you looking forward to this semester? Well, Perina, to keep it short, there's so much happening this semester, but there's two things that I'm looking forward to the most. Um, the first one is the Advocates Mentoring Program. So me, um, I'm thinking I want to become a barrister at some stage. Not sure when, you know, I want to you know, have a couple of years as a solicitor to learn how it works from that side before, you know, I study up and go and take the bar. Um, but I think that would be a fantastic way for me to speak to a barrister or an, or an advocate in a mentor capacity and, you know, sort of ask for their advice to, to shape my career and things like that. You know, and I think the reason why I'm looking forward to it most is because I actually missed the sign up for it last year. And last year would have been great for me, which was unfortunate. But I've marked down this year's sign up uh, in my diary and, uh, and I will be in there well before it is expired. The second thing that I'm looking forward to is, uh, funnily enough, actually first year law camp. Um, I'm going as a leader, um, you know, and to be perfectly honest, I wasn't too um, hyped up about this. You know, I am a bit old. You're not. You're <laughs> uh, younger I'm a, gra- <laughs> my grandpa's. So I've been to a, a bunch of these camps in the past, you know, for different societies. Um, but, you know, just having to walk around campus during orientation week, seeing the enthusiasm that first years have to be here on campus, um, you know, it's such a cool feeling, especially since it really hasn't been there for the past two years with COVID. Um, and it seems like we're full steam ahead with, uh, you know, going back to campus and, and sort of, you know, returning to that culture that we have at uni. It's, it's a very fun and, and enjoyable thing to get involved with. So, you know, I, I think seeing the first years being so enthusiastic has made me a bit excited to go and uh and and see how things go with with camp. Definitely. Um normally this would be the part where I plug um you know go and buy a ticket but it's actually sold out. <laughs> <laughs> Again, all of all all um first years are really enthusiastic about it's it so on, yeah. you know it's it's sold out. I think it's 2 weeks or 3 weeks before it's even happening. So Yeah, it's in like mid-March, I think. Yeah, um if you've got a ticket, definitely look forward to going there. Yes, you can skip your accounting A homework that week. I give you permission. <laughs> you can email your subject coordinator and say, Brayden said I get out of my homework this Brayden week. Brayden from the bar. Okay. And also something that I would like to mention, um, you know, is in regards to this camp. Um, you know, I think a lot of students, especially coming out of COVID, are a little bit uh, anxious about what camp will be like. Um you know, the people that you'll meet, you're going away out of your comfort zone for two nights. Um, you know, and often every year we have a couple of people who cancel, you know, right before law camp begins um, for whatever reason. And look, I would say, you know, it is, I definitely understand the, the anxiety and the, um, you know, the nerves that surround going on your first year camp as a first year but I would very much encourage you to try and go out of your comfort zone and come because you will be hanging out with the people that you'll be having class with. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty nice to be like, oh, you know, rock up to, to, your, uh, to your Foundations of Law tutorial the week after camp and be like, actually, I remember you. Let's sit next to each other. Let's share some notes. And, you know, and that's sort of where it all begins. Um, that's how I met my uh, closest friends at uni was from camp. Um, so very much recommend it. And if you're having doubts or second thoughts, feel free to reach out to anyone um, on council and, uh, and well, any first year really, I'm sure they'd be fine um, for some encouragement. Yeah, and I think, look, if you've um, missed a mark and you haven't gotten tickets, there's start of send drinks coming up as well, isn't there? Yeah, and there's also um, first year law drinks, exactly. uh, which are exclusively, of course, for first years. So go to that, hit that up. Um, talk to people because you will be seeing a lot of familiar faces in your tutorials as well. Um, I know I wish um, I'd gone to first year law camp. I didn't get to go, unfortunately. But, you know, had I had my um, redo again, I definitely would have gone. Mm. So, Perina, back to you. What are you looking forward to the most this semester? My favourite topic. Um, <laughs> um, I'm actually looking forward to the Women in Law panel. Uh, I think that's coming up soon, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm really excited to pick on the panellists' brains and, you know, ask them all the nitty-gritty questions. And, yeah, I'm just really keen for that, as well as um, start of Sam drinks as well. I want to see a lot more faces that I've already seen in and around level 14. But, yeah, get to talk to them on an informal level just as mates as well. 
Mm. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. I think lots in store for semester one, as I said before. Um, so keep your eyes peeled. Like our Facebook page. Check out our Instagram as well, at the bar productions <laughs> underscore, I think. Also check out my Instagram just because. <laughs> check out mine as well, just because. <laughs> Now we'll get into the fun stuff. Not to say that what we were talking about wasn't fun, Brayden, <laughs> but our guest for today is very special and has had an impressive academic and legal career. From completing a clerkship earlier on to having held a great variety of positions, such as being an elected member of the UTS Council, as well as being deeply engaged with innovation and research. It's safe to say she's done it all. Many of you might have had her as your tutor, or you read The Australian Principles of Tort Law, which she has co-written, the torts textbook that we all know and love. Uh, she's our new Dean of Law. Drum roll, please. Please welcome Anita Stunky. Hi, Anita. How are you feeling? Oh, hi, Perina, and hi, Brayden. Um, I'm feeling very well, thank you, and I'm thrilled to be here. I've been listening to this podcast for quite some time, and it's a real honour to be on as uh, a guest. So thank you for having me. So, Anita... Um, we're going to ask you the most important question that we ask everyone who comes onto this podcast. Um, who would you take to the bar and why? It's a great question. And you can imagine that I was in contortions thinking of my answer, but actually it was made clear for me yesterday in the car as I dropped my middle daughter off to school. And I said to her, who should I take to the bar and why? And she looked at me and she said, your family. So I would take my family to the bar. There's uh -huh. five of us. I'd take my partner, Julie. I'd take my son, Tom, who's just started science at Sydney Uni. Why Sydney Uni, we can talk about later, and I'm not sure about that choice, to be honest. <laughs> um, I'd take my daughter, who answered that question, who's going into Year 12, and I'd take my youngest son, Johnny, who's just started Year 7. However, can I just add one thing? I thought, now, if my family was going to the bar, I'd want them to be at the bar because they're living with someone that I admire who's dead. So I thought at that bar I'd like to also have the poet slash author Judith Wright. Ooh. Now, Judith Wright I knew through Year 12. Judith Wright was a poet. But one of the things I found out recently, actually through an honorary adjunct of the faculty, Tony McAvoy, who himself is Indigenous, was that Judith Wright, who's not Indigenous, has written a number of books. And the book that she has written that really changed my perspective on so many things is called The Cry for the Dead. And it's a book about the wars, in effect, against Indigenous Australians, um, really from the 1840s. And Judith Wright's family was sort of engaged in these wars. But when I read it, because I'm from the Hunter Valley and I often drive up north on the highway. I was born in Nelson Bay, so I drive up the highway those names, as you, as you go up, the English names, actually many of them symbolise, um, I guess, Australian farmers who really slaughtered the Indigenous population. And I just found it so eye-opening. So I want my family to sit and listen to Judith Wright talk about why it is she wrote that book, how it is she feels about her family as being the ones who are directly sort of involved in that war. Um, and I think we could sit down and have perhaps depressing, but perhaps also enlightening conversations. So that's who I'd take to the bar. Well, I think that's a very, very interesting guest. Um, I certainly agree with you. I think, you know, Indigenous Australians are certainly underrepresented in the history that we learn, um, you know, as young Australians. Of course, at UTS, we do do a lot of, uh, we have a lot of focus on, you know, Indigenous and access to justice for Indigenous Australians. Um, you know, and that is something that I have very much enjoyed learning about because, they are, you know, our First Nations people. Um, but I think that's a fantastic answer, a lot more sophisticated than mine. Um, but what can we expect from, uh, from you know, a, the Dean of Law? Of course, <laughs> you're going to have something interesting to say. <laughs> Thank you, Brayden. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, the next segment is our legal scoop where we share one interesting legal fact. And today, Brayden and Anita will be sharing theirs. I, uh, I guess I'll begin by asking a question. Um, Prina, what do you think of gavels? They're in every legal drama ever, like yeah. suits, right? You know, those uh, those wooden mounts judges use to court order, um, you know, and of course I sentenced you to 15 years in prison. <laughs> um, you know, perhaps you think of justice or the gavel serving as 
a symbol of the wider judiciary. In fact, do you perhaps one day dream of holding a gavel uh, as a judge in an Australian court? Well, um, our dear fans, my legal scoop this week is actually going to break your heart. And the fact is, we don't actually use gavels in any court in Australia. Um, and this is actually true across the entirety of the Commonwealth, um, with the exception, the single exception, being uh, the inner London Crown Court. Um, and clerks use the, the gavel to alert parties um, to the presence of the judge in the courtroom. Um, so personally, I think this is the almost the Mandela effect of law students. You know, we've grown up watching Suits, and which is such a cliche show for us. Um, but you see the hammers, you see the drama. What about you, Anita? What do you think of this fact? Um, did you already know this? Said that I thought I should know that, but I have this doubt that I didn't. So, Brady, <laughs> I think that's an excellent fact to start us out on. So, well done. And yeah, I would say that's definitely the legal scoop of the week, or the legal bang, perhaps you could call it of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Nita with the puns. Should we? Uh, should we? Should we rename the segment? We should <laughs> the legal bang. Well, the good thing is we actually have somebody who does know a thing or two about law, and that is you, Anita. So what's your legal scoop, um, your fun fact of the week? So many. I have so many to choose from. Um, one, of the, one of the things I really enjoy about being an academic is, of course, engaging in the classroom with students. Um, it's really the richest part of my my career I think so what I thought I'd do is delve into a class that I'm going to give on Friday I'm lucky enough to be teaching two sessions of the subject biomedical law and bioethics so it's an elective subject that I developed many many years ago now um, and it's running again this session so I thought I'd just dip into that because at the moment people may or may not be aware that there's a law passing through the Commonwealth Parliament that's called Maeve's Law. And Maeve's Law is a law about mitochondrial disease. So in effect, in Australia at the moment, cures for mitochondrial disease are in effect forbidden and they're forbidden under the Prohibition of Human Cloning for Reproduction Act and the Research Involving Human Embryos Act. And they're forbidden because when you're looking at mitochondrial donation, you're looking at a situation where, in effect, you're trying to solve a disease, diseases that can lead to death and diseases that are passed through the mitochondria in, in a woman's egg. So the mitochondria, um, and I'm not pretending here to be a scientist, I never do, um, so forgive me those of you out there that are studying science, know science, have done science in previous <laughs> life, um, very much a lawyer here. Um, but basically, if you're looking at the, um, the formation of an egg, you'll have the DNA that will pass on the genetic attributes of the woman. But surrounding that is this mitochondria and it sits inside the, the shell of the egg. So this process of mitochondrial um, donation is to solve mitochondrial disease. So it's it's a quite rare, but it sits in some women, and so they're passing on a genetic disease through this mitochondrial. So the idea is, with Maeve's law, is that these pieces of legislation will be amended to, in effect, allow three parents to have a genetic contribution to a child. So the sperm from the father biological or the donor um, and then the egg will be a combination of the dna of the mother who will presumably be the one who's carrying the child but her mitochondria will be removed and the mitochondria of another woman will be inserted into that egg so it's quite a um uh i guess a bioethically challenging situation because in the past there's been challenges um laid at this in relation to um, design of babies, uh, having three parents, is this genetic modification, is this even something that public money should be spent on? So I think this is a really interesting current development in the law. Um, it's about to be resolved on Wednesday the 30th of March. So basically the amendments have gone through the lower house um, and they're going up to the Senate. I think it's quite likely that it's going to be passed. It was passed in the United Kingdom. Um, and for me, being involved in this area of biomedical law for so long it's a really interesting development 
um, it's really pushing forward, I think, the fact that we're accepting technology as being so integral in the creation of um, human life and curing infertility that we're really accepting the fact that three people can have genetic contributions to a child. So I think it's really interesting um, and it's something that's really current. So watch this space and we'll see at the end of March whether or not the law is actually introduced. Very interesting. That is really interesting. Will you be sharing this with your class on Friday? I will indeed. I will indeed. So I hope no one listens to it between now and Friday. <laughs> Spoiler alert. No, no don't worry. <laughs> we'll keep it top secret yep, until Under then. the wraps till then. Well, you mentioned um, this, this sort of law has passed in the UK. Is there any other country on earth that has done that as precedent besides the UK? Not to my knowledge. So we'd be the second knowledge. in the world. Yes, to my knowledge. Um... I mean, in some ways, when we're thinking about this type of technology, it is often Western countries because, of course, they're wealthy um, that are blazing the trail. Now, when I say Western countries, I'm not including all countries. Um, If we're looking at the United States, for example, um, because of the... Uh, consideration they have around rules concerning terminations, concerning um, human life, um, they often aren't as, I don't know if we call it advanced, uh, but they're not as technologically focused as other jurisdictions. So in some ways it's not surprising that it's the UK and Australia. And remember also Australia was the first jurisdiction really in the world to have IVF, in vitro fertilisation, which is the procedure that this uses um, because you, of course, have to have the semen and the egg outside the body and have the embryo um, in order to be able to transfer the mitochondria. So, in effect, you need an embryo between the, um, I guess, can I call her the woman who has the mitochondrial disease and the intended father or the father, the donor, um, and you similarly have to have an embryo between that donor father um, and the woman who's donating her mitochondria. So IVF is something I think that's, um, it's can I say, in the DNA of the Australian um, system of infertility treatment. Therefore, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really surprised that we're at the forefront of this. The other thing, because you see, once you get me talking, you can't stop me. The other <laughs> thing to remember um, about this area that I think is fascinating is that most of the fertility treatment in Australia is actually done through private providers. So we have um, quite a number of fertility clinics or should I say companies that are registered on the stock exchange. So there's a lot of money um, invested in this area as well. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me either in terms of some of the, the lobbying that goes on behind the scenes to ensure that you know changes are made to the law that can advance um, certain interests. Not denying though, just finish my thing. Not denying though that um, this is actually um, very traumatic and very sad. And if you watch some of the debates that went on in the lower house, which I have um, in terms of the reading of the bill, um, really, really difficult and sad to see how upset actually the people even reading the bills who know people who have children that have died from this um, process are. So, not denying that there's lots of different interests in it, but it's just such a complex and interesting area. Certainly. Um, I guess I just have one more question in regards to that. Um, you know, this is more of a medical treatment um, from the way you've described it to fix illnesses um, that might occur um, through the mitochondria. Do you think there is perhaps any um, social outcomes out of this? For example, um, same-sex couples um, being both being related to their child. Um, you know, is there scope for that to happen in the future? Oh, Brayden, yes. And... and- Those sorts of points are exactly where there's historically been, and you can imagine, all sorts of debate around the the potential usage of this form of technology. Um, Of course, some people saying it's fantastic and other people saying it threatens the traditional heterosexual um, nuclear family. So that's that's definitely it. And and in some ways, you know, to take it to its bioethical sort of principle, um, there's a slippery slope argument that happens. Well, if if we do this, if we have three parents, where will this stop? What does that mean for how we structure society? Um, and and in, in ethics, in bioethics, it's a little bit like the legal argument, opening the floodgates that's often used. We won't, you know, develop a principle because that's going to open the floodgates. We won't allow this type of donation because there's a slippery slope and we won't we don't know where we'll end up. So you're exactly right. Um, I hope you're doing biomedical law and bioethics, Braden, on Friday. Maybe I'll see you there. No, I'm not at that stage of my degree yet, unfortunately. I'm still doing my core subjects. 
Okay, well, when you do, and Perina, when you do, um, think about it as a subject, because the great thing about it, I think, in thinking about um, law in this way, is that we're trying to think about it from different perspectives. So often as lawyers, we come at things saying, well, law is the solution. Law gives us the form of regulation that'll provide us with the answer. But what we often see in areas which have these sorts of bioethical dilemmas, like euthanasia, um, xenotransplantation, where you're taking animal organs and placing them into humans, the law doesn't always give us the answer. Uh, and I think as, as lawyers, that's something that we need to be aware of. Yeah. That's so true. I'm, I'm definitely going to do it now because ethics plays such a big role into it as well. And when you first mentioned um, biomedical, I was thinking, okay, well, I know nothing about science. All I know about the mitochondria is that it is the powerhouse of the cell. I don't know anything else <laughs> after that, <laughs> but I've learned a lot more. So I would be inclined to give it a go. Oh, Perina, that's great. <laughs> and what I love about that is that you said that and knew more about mitochondria than I did. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. You know, we would be we would be in the class learning together. And one of the great things I think about having the ability to do elective subjects like this is you're in a classroom with so many different perspectives. And so the aim of this as well is to try to challenge people's differences. Um, so one of the things we'll be doing on Friday is like, and this is going to sound corny, but I hope it's not in practice, <laughs> it's like a role play um, where, you know, you put a group of people together and you're pretending you're making a law about this, for example, Maeve's law, um, and you say, okay, well, you know, you're a religious advisor. You're a lay person who's against this. You're So it's challenging people's opinions and making them argue from different perspectives as well. So it's, it's a great subject, I think. Good. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I guess, and this is again not something that um, I had planned to ask until now, but you know, given you are the new Dean of Law, do you have any recommendations for people who are looking for their electives? You know, is there anything that's essential um, or, you know, if you're going a certain career path, should you take this subject, for example? That's such a good question. And isn't it isn't it no matter what answer I give, it's still going to lead to uncertainty in people's lives because, <laughs> because, because I'm honestly going to give this as an answer. I think you should choose the electives that interest you. I really think you should. Now, did I do that? Um, I must admit I did choose tax law. Um, <laughs> why did I do that? I think at the time, and I did end up in a commercial law firm at you know, some point, but I did think at the time it would be something that I should do. Now, ironically, I ended up enjoying it. And that's the other thing about this advice. You can choose things because you think you like them. Um, but actually, sometimes accidents can lead to really happy outcomes. Um, so any advice in this area is flawed, but I do, I would go with that golden it's sort of the golden string, if you like, but try and follow your instincts. Uh, if you're choosing a subject because you think it's the right thing to do, but you really cannot stand the way that it's, you know, going to be presented or perhaps you don't think that you'll excel at the way it's assessed and you want to do better, then weigh it up um, and perhaps at the end of the day just go with what it is that you think you'll like and enjoy. It'll be easier to do. I think you'll get more out of it uh, and you'll probably find that it's an easier path. And by easy, I don't mean that law is easy. Law is never easy. Um, but easier in terms of finding, um, I guess, a, an energy from the subject rather than feeling that you have to drag yourself to the reading and then drag yourself through it. So if anything, I'd say try and trust your instincts and choose what you like. I think that's a great answer. I think so too because, you know, with core law subjects, I'm dragging myself and I'm not able to find the balance that I would, you know, everyone's talking about that sweet spot that I'm not at yet. But with electives, I hope I can achieve that as well. Yeah, great point. I mean, it's even interesting with core subjects, isn't it? The fact that we feel that we must do something makes it harder to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. And there's some there's some unpicking of that. Uh, it's almost like finding that, that sweet spot you were talking about, finding that little bright spot in the subject, the little surprise that you didn't know would be on page 338. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, something something like that. There's, there's, there's got to be a joy that you find in doing it. Mm, it's difficult. difficult. It's almost like a mind game. You can't look at it as something you have to achieve and conquer, rather... It's just a learning curve and hopefully you find something interesting. 
Exactly. I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good that we're on the same page. Um, I certainly will be picking the elective that I think looks the coolest, um, but I haven't decided really what I want to do yet. So I, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Exactly. (laughs) Very good. Sounds wise. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have the first time I've ever been called wise was actually yesterday. Um, So you just were beat there, Anita. I'm sorry. What was um, the context? <laughs> it was actually in that in that faculty meeting that we had. I um I think Maxine said I was wise. Yeah, Maxine said wise, Braden, and I was, there, I was there. Yeah, I screenshotted it because I was like, <laughs> I've never been called wise before. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what I did to inspire that comment from Maxine, but I'm forever grateful for it. It might be a Zoom thing because you're emanating wisdom right now. Maybe it's just on Zoom. Maybe. Well, I did. I did actually really get into mooding when during 2020 when COVID hit and it all went online. So maybe, maybe it's that sort of the the skill that I picked up from that in terms of how to present over Zoom calls. Who knows? Maybe that's a cheeky plug to start mooding for our listeners out there. (laughs) Um, Because I cannot recommend it highly. Sorry, more high than than I do. Because fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anita, what we'll do now is uh, we'll actually bring it to a little bit more of a personal level with you. You know, we just want to talk about your, you know, your experience as an academic, your career path, you know, your vision for um, as Dean of Law. Um, In that case, uh, could you tell us, you know, what, just give us a brief overview of your journey, um, you know, at the beginning of your career to now as Dean of Law. Thank you, Brian. I always love a chance to talk about myself. Are we all? <laughs> um, so I think I should start at the beginning. I was born at Nelson Bay, um, and Nelson Bay is about two and a half hours north of Sydney. Um, and at the time I was born there, it was a very, very small town. Now if you've been to Port Stephens, um, it's quite large and it also has an airport next to it called Newcastle Airport. When I went there uh, and finished Year 12, there were around 13 of us that finished in Year 12. Um, so that's what I mean by a small town. Um, wow. I didn't really know many people who'd been to university. Um, I'd assumed that the optometrist had, the doctor had, no one in my family certainly had, um, and a great deal of the people that I'd gone through to Year 12 with didn't end up going to university either. So, law. There I was, not knowing what to do, but I had great encouraging parents. Um, And I must admit, I got to sort of year 10 and year 11, and probably like most other people, I think the lucky ones know what they want to do. Um, I looked at radiography. Um, I looked at, at that stage on television, we had someone called Quincy. He used to do autopsies. I thought that was quite cool at the time. I'm not sure why. I looked at journalism, which was something I think that most people did. Um, And then my mother, who was quite motivated, took me into someone to do a test. Um, You know, one of the tests that you do that that finds out what you're good at. And it turned out that I could do both English and maths, which was no help at all, really. But then I found out, I don't know what I was stumbling around on, um, when I got to year 12, we had like a work placement. And being from Nelson Bay at that time, I'd stumbled on the fact that if, you know, you could do both English and maths for some reason, law might be something that you could do. So I said this to my careers advisor that I'd like to do law as my one-week placement. So I was placed in Newcastle as a legal secretary um, in a law firm because that's what happened when you were my age. If you wanted to do law, you were a legal secretary. It wasn't envisaged that you would want to be a a lawyer Um, because, remember, I'm quite old uh, in terms of the grand scheme of things now. (laughs) So... I did my one week as a, as a legal secretary, um, very nervous, very hard, all the rest of it, and thought, actually, this is quite, it's quite interesting, I'm going to pursue this. So I put that down um, and was accepted at Macquarie University in Sydney. So finished year 12, I actually then took a year and because my father was an avid Rotarian, I ended up in Germany for one year, which was another story I can tell you about, but it's given me a lot of empathy for people who live in countries that are not their own, I can tell you that much. So I lived in Germany for a year and I came back and I studied law at Macquarie. Um, When it came up towards the end, and I'm sure you all feel this, the most obvious thing to gain employment in was the clerkship rounds. There was a lot of pressure. Um, And I'm sure today it's even more so than we, you know, sort of confronted with it. So it was sort of like a natural thing that I felt I had to do. Um, It was quite funny, really, because I remember for the the summer clerkship placements, 
I put in, and I'm not sure if this is the same now, I put in, I'd say, 30 applications. I ended up getting quite a lot of interviews. I think I had, I don't know, in those days, 12 or 13 interviews. I was so terrible, so terrible. I was so lucky at the end to get one offer from Phillips Fox for a summer clerkship. So that just shows you in terms of my skill level and my confidence levels, I think, as to where I was at. But what was really interesting about that process is that I learned how to do interviews. I learned what was really bad. So I think every cloud has a silver lining. So there I am, summer clerkship, Phyllis Fox. I decided that I'd rather go to a larger firm. So I went to Freehills, uh, then called Freehills, Hollandale and Page. Um, I did a rotation through real property. I did a rotation through superannuation. Um, and there was just something I decided this is, this is just not going to work for me. Works for many other people. Um, there was a lot of things that I can talk about later if you'd like to, but just for me, it wasn't going to work. Sitting at my desk, looking at a newspaper, there was an academic position advertised at the University of Western Sydney. I thought, I can't be an academic. They're gods. We can <laughs> laugh now, actually. But they're gods. <laughs> I, if I apply for that, I can't, I can't get that. Um, but I applied and I got the job and then I moved to UTS and I've happily been an academic ever since. Now, in terms of being the dean, um, in some ways, I, I think you're getting the picture that my career is not necessarily well planned out. It's a, it's a series of either accidents or staying somewhere because I love it. I've stayed at UTS for now the bulk of my career. I started here in 1996. I think it is the most wonderful institution. I think the Faculty of Law is the most wonderful place to work. I consider myself to be incredibly lucky, not a god, but incredibly <laughs> lucky to be an academic. It's the most fantastic job, and I can talk about that later. So, therefore, only recently appointed dean, like at the beginning of December last year, to be the dean of the Faculty of Law at UTS and work with such wonderful colleagues and be with such wonderful students as yourselves, it's just such an honour. So, I mean, if you're thinking about a career and a journey, um, it, it's it's been one where if I went back to myself, you know, at high school in Nelson Bay and said, do you think one day that you'll be living in Sydney? I would have said no. <laughs> no. And I would have said, do you think one day you would have done a, a law degree? <laughs> no. You know, do you think one day you'd be dean? I would have said, well, what is a dean? <laughs> so I come, I guess, from a background that, that is not one that's one of privilege um, and I feel that I've landed in a place that I can really, with colleagues around me and with the students around me, make a real difference and a real impact. So I just feel incredibly lucky. So that's my career journey. Well, we're incredibly lucky, lucky to have you on as our Dean of Law. And to hear your journey as well. It's just amazing to hear um, women in law excelling like this. Um, but I was wondering, did you have any challenges early on in your career as a woman in law? Miranda, that's an excellent question. And, you know, looking back, um, I think it's one of the reasons I chose academia um, in some ways. Uh, I think it's difficult for everyone. So so perhaps to go back one, one further step. I think working um, particularly in an environment where there's an expectation of very long hours, um, there's a lot of pressure, there's systems that were then based on a six-minute type of timesheet. For someone like myself who's a perfectionist, even the fact of having to fill in a six-minute timesheet was quite a challenge. I, I remember sitting there one morning and thinking, well, if, if I walk from here to the photocopier, do I count that my six <laughs> minutes or, or don't I? So for me personally, there are a lot of challenges in that environment. And, and also I watched other people thriving. So women and men thriving in that environment, really obviously finding their feet and really enjoying it. And... I think that's one of the sort of the, the, the choices that comes into it. So there's the workplace, there's a workplace culture, there's a confidence level. I actually think that I was underconfident. Was that because of my upbringing? Was that because I was a woman? Um, possibly all those things. If I'd been more confident, I may have found my place, you know, much, much more easily. So I think for me, probably being a female has impacted on my choices, but not consciously, if, if, if you know what I mean. I think it's possibly the same for everyone. So there might be certain attributes 
not to do with gender that people subconsciously make choices on. Um, but that said, I do think a, a culture, and we've got one in the, at the faculty that I'm in at the moment, a culture that's very accepting of everyone, very inclusive, uh, just makes coming to work and achieving difference so much richer. And also I think the impact can have more richer. So in short, Prima, I think the answer is yes, it has made a difference for me. I have seen things change and shift, um, but I do think the sorts of obstacles one faces are probably obstacles that one would face because of other attributes that you may have. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not the only um, difficulty, I guess, but it definitely was there for me, yes, I, I would say so. Exactly. Because when you are faced with a difficulty, you wouldn't think, well, is this, as a woman, is it the choice I've made? That's not the first thing that pops into a woman's head. It would be something a lot more deeper than that, wouldn't it? But then you look mm. back and then you realise it could be this or it's a product of a mix of problems. Mm, absolutely, and Perina, just and this is not in any way meaning to um, simplify the complexity of your question because your question is so rich and deep and I don't think I can do it justice. But <laughs> I think to take a really simple answer for me, I quite like comfortable clothes. Um, it's probably a failure. What I found in a commercial setting was that the shoes I had to wear and the fact that I felt that I had to, to dress in a particular way was quite constraining. Um, and that's possibly something that could translate for anyone. But it's quite interesting that that subconsciously possibly had an impact. Um, I probably looked a lot better then than I did now. I possibly should dress better now. Um, you can, you can, you know, give me some tips and tricks and uh, tell me. I'm learning from you. <laughs> <laughs> the most surprising student feedback, I, I think I've only ever got what I would consider one negative comment, which is pretty good actually, the student feedback service, um, and it said she wears too much black. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if that's the only bad comment you've gotten with over 25 years at UTS, I think you're actually winning um, supremely. <laughs> oh, Your heads and shoulders I, above the pack. Thank you. I think what's alarming is that I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone looks in, looks good in black if it's any consolation. So it really is a compliment in disguise, isn't it? I can <laughs> say... When you taught me in torts last year, I did not notice any excessive black clothing whatsoever. <laughs> Is that because you, <laughs> you're traumatized by that comment? <laughs> I can see you. I can see you. So for listeners who can't see, I'm currently wearing a top that has yellow, green and white. With a black background. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing your answer to that, Anita. It's very it's very inspiring, I think, to, to hear, um, you know, someone come from, you know, not your traditional you would think would become an academic and yet you've found your path, you found your way through multiple, um, you know, through your clerkship and then through ac academia. And I think that's really cool, you know, to find your feet like that. Of course, that doesn't really mean a whole lot coming from me still at uni. But, you know, it is nice to have um, people to look up to in that regard. Um, I guess I would say, though, in regards to the clerkships, well, you may have... Um, struggled in the interviews uh, because you weren't across them completely yet. I would say at least you didn't have to do any psychometric testing. Oh, that is so true. I cannot say how much I admire you all if you get to that point, firstly, and then secondly, undergoing that type of testing. I I really think it's it's admirable. And there's a whole... Oh, there's a whole critique behind that, isn't there, in terms of, um, I guess, how just and fair they are, what the algorithms are. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole new world, Braden. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, yes, then I guess um, our condolences go out to anyone who is applying for clerkships this year. Um, we believe in you and you can do it. <laughs> and you can also do something else. Yes, also, yes, as well, of course. Um you know, feel free to do whatever you're most interested in. I think, exactly. yeah, that's something that we have also discussed, Prina, which is more leaning towards, we, we feel like there's a bit of a, a you know, almost like a, a, a go fever, if that makes sense, for clerkships and um, commercial law. And obviously not saying either, like, either of those avenues are bad, um, you know, but they're not necessarily the avenues that you have to take. There's so much more there. Um, and of course, 
you know, speaking of electives earlier, a fantastic way to explore those different areas of law that perhaps aren't covered by big commercial firms. Yep, it just reiterates the fact that the traditional route isn't the correct one. And what Anita was saying earlier as well, you pick what you think you will like, not what you think is right. Mm. But yeah. Yep, I agree. Yeah, the, the best the best route is really um, the one that is best for each individual. Exactly. It's almost exactly. like we're all unique humans with different it's almost like we're all unique. And, yeah. Exactly. We, we are moving towards, of course, calling things now the student experiences, not the student experience, because you're all different. Ah, exactly. So, you know, continuing our amazing streak of question, answer, question, answer, um, I have another one for you. I uh, just wanted to gather your thoughts and what your vision for UTS Law is this year. A great question. I, in terms of my appointment, would like to achieve a distinctive identity for UTS. Now, I think we have one. Um, I think we've established ourselves as a university and a law faculty, very focused and able to deal with the future and technology. I think that we do things that are wonderful across research, across education, across engagement. But I think in terms of my vision, not only would I like to maintain what we already do so well, and that's producing quality graduates, outstanding graduates. I mean, we have the highest satisfaction amongst our law graduates um, of any institution in New South Wales. So maintain that, maintain our high impact research that's aimed at social justice, um, you know, really having a real world impact as well as engaging with all our stakeholders, the profession, NGOs, government, etc. as well as doing all that, what I'd really like to do is really advance the Indigenous agenda. And I think in some ways that's why I started with Judith Wright. Um, I think that there's something that we can do to really be a globally leading law school in the space of First Nations people and the Indigenous agenda. And by that I mean not that we don't already do very well. Uh, we have the highest number of Indigenous HDR students, I think, of any law school in the country. Um, but there's something about our identity, I think, that sits so well with really trying to take forward uh, an agenda that has been on a slow burn and is picking up speed. Um, so I, I guess my vision is to keep doing what we do so well, but in terms of our identity, consider what can we do in the Indigenous space and as well as that, look at how we can weave that type of narrative or identity into things that are important across our student body, across our uh, the law firms, across the courts. Um, there's a number of things I think that we can think about a little bit more. Uh, synergistically a word? I think you've got me beat there. So. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. <laughs> trying, to, trying to bring these things together. And really also looking at the faculty as sitting in a precinct. I mean, we're in a remarkable position. We're the closest law school to the CBD. We're the closest law school to the courts. Uh, we're next to the ABC. We're in a remarkable position. And I think that that's something to think about in terms of location. And, again, you know, sort of feeds off this idea of who are we, what are we, where are we going and what we'd like to achieve and what's our what's our real social justice aim. So mm. there's my vision. Well, uh, thank you so much, Anita, for sharing uh, your vision. I think it, it sounds really, really cool. Um, very much in agreement with you. And I guess from less of a legal perspective um, and more of a social one, I think it would be really cool to see in Australia Indigenous culture celebrated in the way that it is similar to New Zealand. Um, you know, for example, you watch the All Blacks um, play rugby union and they do the haka, of course. That is very, very iconic, um, you know, and that is really embracing their Indigenous culture at the world stage. That's, you know, one of the sports that they're best at in the world. And I would love to see things like that incorporated into Australia, you know, more Indigenous street names, you know, more just integration of the culture within ours because, you know, it, it, it makes us so much more unique as a country. Well said, Brandon. Oh, I was, I'm like nodding because I was just about to say as a torts 
sort of person, um, that, that idea of, you know, the reasonable person. I mean, in, in tort law, you know, we talk about the fact that the reasonable person is, you know, the, the, the white male and Bondi diving into the surf. <laughs> and I, I guess at the essence of what I'm trying to say in terms of UTS law is I think we really value and treasure diversity and inclusiveness. And they're the values that I'm really passionate about and I think that that's where we make such a huge difference. I mean, if you're looking, for example, at our student body, if you're looking at the type of research we do, if you look at the, the number of electives we have and the different areas those electives are offered in, you can see that there's a recognition that society is diverse and it's that diversity and inclusiveness that we need to celebrate and I think as lawyers we can be change agents. Um, I mean, the law is a site of oppression, but it's also a site of liberation and we need to be trained in it and really look at whether it works well from the inside for everybody, not 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 just for that sort of reasonable man who's diving into the surf at Bondi. So I think what you just said is right. <laughs> Continuing on with what we were talking about, um, would are there any passions that you want to discuss um, on the bar today? There are, actually. Um, I have two. One's my pet passion um, and the other I think is one that is a passion but I should mention. Um, I think that there's something in terms of talking about where I've got to that I'd like to acknowledge and that's having people who mentor you either informally or formally and people who assist you. And i just like to give a shout-out to all those people who have done that for me and I guess to also say to them that that's something I'm passionate about. Um, I really believe in assisting and helping um, and facilitating the desires and objectives of other people. So that's a real passion. But the reason I really wanted to talk about passion and something I'm ultimately passionate about is I'd like to share with you how much I despise the Australian Guide to Legal Citation. (laughs) Our listeners are going to love this. I think if I have a public forum to take the Australian Guide to Legal Citation (laughs) on, I need to make good use of it. Oh, let's hear it. I don't don't know. You're probably not aware that um, I have written a book that's called Legal Referencing. Um, At the time I wrote this book, back in the 90s, um, there was no style, if you like, in Australia for legal citation. And I thought, oh, this is strange. I'll I'll write a book to tell people how to do it. But that year, three other books came out along with the Australian Guide to Legal Citation. Now, let me then start from the point that I have nothing against citation per se. Clearly, I wrote a book on it. (laughs) What I do have against the Australian Guide to Legal Citation is that it puts forward the skill of whether or not you have a full stop or a bracket in the right place or you italicise something, they put forward that as being the major skill that should be mastered. Whereas I think, yes, it's important to be uniform, but really it's the referencing that's important. Where do you put your footnote? Where do you put your italics? When is it that you give attribution to someone else's material? I think what the Australian Guide to Legal Citation has done is take away from us the art and the craft and the belief that attribution in writing is what is important. Instead, what those, um, actually, I'm starting to get passionate, so I'll claw myself back. Instead, (laughs) what's happened with the Australian Guide to Legal Citation is that every time a new edition comes out, someone changes their mind as to whether or not we need to cite the place of publication, for example, if it's a book. Someone changes their mind as to whether or not we need to actually include things like a comma after a page or a paragraph. The Australian Guide to Legal Citation does some whitewashing in terms of, you know, not acknowledging that there is actually a First Nations way of citing material. So I can go on about this for quite a long time, but I'm just sending the message out to your listeners that the Australian Guide to Legal Citation is a set of rules, and as lawyers and students of law, we love rules. But let's not lose sight of the fact the most important thing is recognition of other people's work in the framework of your own original ideas. So if you despise the Australian Guide to Legal Citation, that's absolutely fine. You have to use it, 
but stand back from it and critique it. And if you find things in it that you really don't like or you think are inconsistent or you think should change, please email me, Anita Stumke, the Dean of the Faculty of Law. And when I write my third article in a series of articles that I've never had so much fun writing because I laugh out loud <laughs> when I write them, it's going to be the third article as to why is the Australian Guide to Legal Citation so very bad for law students. I'll try and include it and I will reference you using AGL style in my footnote. <laughs> that is so funny. So when when you write, um, where are you published in? Um, they're in. Uh, I, I should have looked it up before I said it. Um, I've got one public. I, I can send it to you later. I can yeah. look it up if you want. Is it is it the conversation? No, no, no. They're in. Um, they're in law journals. Oh, okay. So there's there's two of them. I just. I have never had so much fun writing a journal article in my life because <laughs> I, I I just I detest it. So I sit there and point out what's wrong with it. Um, the third one that I'm writing, uh, if I get time now that I'm dean, but the third one I'm writing is going to be aimed towards the Melbourne University Law Review because the Australian Guide to Legal Citation comes out of the Melbourne University. So it's done by law students at Melbourne. So that's where I'm going to get it published. So <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, in their own like, journal. It's, yeah, it's like it's like putting a, a stake in the heart of the the evil Dracula. <laughs> oh my goodness! So I guess I, my I think everyone should hear that. <laughs> I think they should hear that because it's actually interesting. I, I I've given several presentations to academics, and they're quite. I think they're quite funny. The room's laughing, but at the end of it, they often come up and thank me because they also, like students, get stuck in the minutiae, and the minutiae is necessary. Don't get me wrong. You have to follow the Australian Guide to Legal Citation, but I think if you can sit back from it and be critical of it, it makes it so much easier to use it, you know, instead of thinking that it's right. Mm. Yeah, look, I really struggled personally with AGLC for, uh, in particular, citing United Nations materials, um, which I I thought was just really convoluted um, in the way that it goes about it. What are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, but send me an email. Let's do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a mix of um, you know, the website like where I'm getting it from, United Nations website, not citing it or not having the details that the guide is looking for, um, which was I guess one of the problems. But I think in AGLC's defence, um, no. and don't 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 <laughs> don't hate me on this one. I do think they they have attempted to. Uh, at the beginning of the guide to sort of explain when and why, you know, but I have sat at assignments for hours being like, is this right? Is this wrong? It gets to a point where it's like, all right, deduct the mark. I don't care. I'm moving on. I got to keep, well, I got to keep writing. Um, yeah. You know, I think it really misses the why part, but I think AGLC4 is in particular pretty great at telling you how to do it. Like it's quite clear, but it doesn't say the why. Um, and so I guess the problem really is, is Anita, how come your book didn't sell a lot better when you released it and become the dominant legal citation oh. in Australia? Oh, I love that question. And I can answer that. <laughs> so it's published with what's now Lexus Nexus. Um, and I distinctly remember the conversation. They came to me and they said, well, Anita, the AGLC has come out and they've said that there's one style. Your guide says that there's several styles because, in effect, I was saying adopt a style. This might be the one that's preferable, but be consistent. They said, can can we create your guide as the guide with one style? And this is where one makes a career mistake. <laughs> For you students, makes a student mistake. I said, no, that's not right. That's not right. The most important thing in legal referencing is consistency. The most important thing is understanding where materials come from and being able to cite them. The important thing is not having one style, you know, as long as you're using a consistent style. That was my first error. The second error was, of course, LexisNexis themselves internally had no accepted style. So when they went back and looked at their sources, their books were all using different styles. Mm. I mean, a book was using a consistent style. Different journals, we're using different journals. Um, and so I think at the end they gave up in trying to pressure me and I thought, you know, as you do as you go off into the sunset on your horse and eventually fall off, I thought I was doing something noble. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have been. 
But uh, I think any number higher than one is, is very hard for humans to it comprehend. Is. Well, we've had a breadth of knowledge today, um, getting a lot from the Dean of Law. It was really good to hear, you know, all your thoughts and all your um, visions for 2022 law. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to Season 3, Episode 2 of The Bar. And we hope you enjoyed. I very much enjoyed being here. I very much enjoyed having a conversation with both of you. I think that one of the most amazing innovations is this podcast. Um, <laughs> and I really am enjoying the fact that we have uh, new hosts and I'll be listening in the future eagerly. And I too have learned quite a bit today. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank and you. all credit to previous councils for starting the podcast. Um, we love to be here because of them. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Bar Podcast. I've been Brayden. I've been Perina. And we'll see you next week for the happiest happy hour. See ya.